Good morning. As we uh, settle into our seats and as some of God's children make their way out of here, I just want to mark quickly mark a few milestones. This month, the month of August of 2015, marks uh, the fourth year. It's our four-year uh, birthday. Four years ago, Fonder Church began meeting each and every week. Isn't that great? Uh, yeah, yesterday, uh, our daughter, my daughter, turned 14 years old. Today, our dog turns three. Someone in our church drove to around Knoxville, Tennessee and got this little cute golden retriever in a cage and transported him here, and I think he won the lotto. Um, also want to say happy birthday to a gentleman who's not here today, but there's a man named Vaughn Dunaway. I don't know if you've had a chance to meet Vaughn. Some of you have. He's not involved in Fondren Church. God forgive him. He's involved in Woodland Hills. They, uh, we share the building with them. They've been around here a long time. They're a great congregation. They worship uh, before we do at the 930 hour. And Vaughn Dunaway turns, ready for this, 100 years old today. hundred. Yeah. Well, I don't know why you're clapping. He's not in the room. In fact, he didn't even come to the first service. But what are you going to do? Hey, Brother Vaughn, you weren't at church today. Why not? I'm 100. I'm picturing like, just picture Grant, uh, Clint Eastwood in Grand Torino, right? Just real strong, throwing out some opinions. Do not mess with Vaughn Dunaway. He's 100, y'all. We're in a, this morning when we push the boat offshore and actually begin this sermon, we'll uh, begin the third sermon in a five-part series called The Church on Point and on Purpose. And what we're doing here, we, we've asked the question, have you ever been involved in an organization, but it, the experience grew sour because there wasn't a higher purpose, motivation, or mission behind it? The church ought not to be fuzzy. You know, Jesus gives the mission of the church. It doesn't take an elder team or staff pastors, deacons, or any of that to determine what the mission of the church is. Jesus gave the, 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 the church a mission. He said, make disciples. But we're asking, what does it look like to make disciples? Disciples are people who learn, who grow in Christ. In fact, what kind of growth do we want to promote? And we, uh, week one, we looked at Galatians 5, 6, where uh, Paul says, hey, these religious things, they don't count. They don't really matter. In fact, there's only one thing that counts. And we said, God, make us this kind of church. Make us like a hedgehog where we do this one thing really well. And Paul says, the only thing that counts, can you say at church if you've been here, is faith, a growing faith that expresses itself in love. We went back to Acts 15. We looked at the Council of Jerusalem where the early church was deciding really what they were going to be about or what they were continuing to be about because the church was growing and people were getting involved in it. And there's this great council there where the religious leaders, the early church leaders said, we do not want to make it difficult for people to get in. How great is that? How great would that be if we were that kind of church here in this great community? That we wouldn't be about our religious stuff and making it difficult for people to enter in. But we would be about Jesus and you and I would be about growing our faith and seeing that it's expressed in love. We looked at faith week one. We looked at love last week and what Paul talked about. The goal of our instruction is love. From a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. That's the goal of this thing. Uh, When you uh, connect to a community group, when you get involved in a class, when you go on mission, when you circle up with some friends, when you enter a mentoring relationship, when you get involved in our newly formed student ministry, the goal of all that instruction, the goal of every time you crack a book and hear the word of God is what? It's love. It's love. That's the goal of it all. What if we were becoming that kind of church? Today, in the next three weeks, we're going to look at our values that have been with us from the beginning. Gospel enjoyment, 
intentional community, and prayerful mission. This is not a commercial for Fondren Church. If you're here and you've been checking out churches, my hope is you would stop. Honestly, I hope you, I hope you found the place that God is calling you. But this isn't a commercial for our church, but we do want to be clear. We want everyone to know that our mission is not fuzzy and what we value around here is biblical and it's compelling. So today we want to look at gospel enjoyment. What comes to your mind when you hear the word gospel? Maybe it's a choir. Maybe it's something from yesteryear, something a little archaic or misunderstood, but it's a genre of music maybe in your mind. But gospel is what we're called to experience and to express. We herald good news. The word simply means good news. And what we're saying as a church that what we want to value is we want to collectively enjoy this good news. As you experience it, you express it to others. As I experience it, I express it to others that we would collectively be an experiencing, expressing gospel enjoyment community. In Acts 9.31, it says the early church, it grew as the movement took off in Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and it grew. And it says that the early church, that they, they continued on in the fear of God, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they enjoyed peace with one another. Next week, we'll call you into intentional community, and then we'll talk as we round out the series in this month of August. We'll talk about prayerful mission, how our church can grow in faith and express itself in love. But today, I want us to hone in on what your life could look like if you enjoy the gospel. Many years ago, back in the, when I was a college student, by the way, welcome back some of our college students. Isn't it great to have them with us? Um, when I was in college back in the <clears throat> 80s, I attended a conference with Campus Crusade for Christ. It's called Crew Now. And this conference this particular year was in Dallas, Texas. And I joined a whole bunch of college students, a couple thousand students. It's sort of like passion is today for students. And we were there. And toward the end of the conference, we had just a couple of nights left. A big snowstorm came through Dallas. That's right. It was, it was a January the 2nd of this particular year in the 80s was the biggest snowstorm in recorded history in Dallas, Texas. Our staff gathered around us. They called our group together and they said, hey, here's what we're thinking. This is going to be tough and everyone gets an extra night or two in the hotel. Everyone should stay. And me and a a few friends, we decided, well, we needed to go. In fact, we quoted to our staff members the the lyrics of that Smokey and the Bandit song, right? I got a long way to go and a short time to get there. We're eastbound and whatever. You know, we got to go somewhere. And me and a, a young college student named Chip Henderson, some of you may know, he's a pastor of a little bitty struggling church called Pine Lake. And Chip and I and a couple of friends, Jamie Abel, Danny McKinney, and Mark Stevens, we said, we're hitting the road. We had two cars, we're hitting the road. And we began to look out, Chip and I in particular, we looked out the hotel and we thought, you know, if we can just get outside of downtown Dallas, that's going to be rough. But if we can hit I-20, those big 18-wheelers are going to be breaking up the snow and ice and we're going to be good to go. And we left early that morning, defying authority. I know the Bible teaches differently, but we were young, had a lot to learn. And we hit the road, and about 10 hours later in our cars, we could look back and see the Dallas skyline. (laughs) Jackknife trucks. We were stuck on I-20. And no fooling, from the time that you could drive from Dallas to Jackson and back again and back again, we made it from Dallas to Shreveport. (laughs) 
We were stuck, and at one point, it's, if you've ever been there, any of you Yankees in the room from the north, you know about snow and ice, right? But it, it's the most helpless feeling to be operating a motor vehicle and to turn, right? You're supposed to turn your wheel in the direction of the skid, which is so counterintuitive. You're not supposed to pump the brakes too heavy, right? But I probably did both and ended up down an embankment. I was stuck. I was stuck. Stuck happens. Stuck happens not just on icy roads and snowstorms. Stuck happens in marriages and relationships with behavior and emotions. It happens in finances. It happens in all areas of life. I guess we could start this sermon on gospel enjoyment by saying stuck happens. Back in the day, a man invaded, he entered history. And this man had this strange and supernatural power to help people get unstuck. The adulterous woman trapped in the guilt of her affairs. The tax collector enslaved by his greed and thirst for more and more and more. A religious man named Nicodemus who was blinded by his self-righteous hypocrisy toward other people. A boat full of disciples who were paralyzed by their fear. A Pharisee named Saul who couldn't free himself from the anger that was trapped so deep inside of him. And in each scenario, every man and woman came to the end of themselves. They knew they were stuck, but they came to the end of themselves and said, I can no longer control my life. This thing is unmanageable. I can't free myself. And they bound themselves to this man. They abandoned their way of life. They embraced his new teachings, and they found their liberation. Jesus said this, tell me if you believe that it's true. Jesus said this, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Do you believe that? He also went on to say this is, this is the good news of gospel enjoyment. You're not going to enjoy the gospel unless you realize your stuckness and your inability to manage your life. Why would Jesus say it's better for a rich man or or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven? What was he doing? Was he ripping the rich? Was he saying that only one kind of socioeconomic class really matters? Is that what he was saying? No. He was saying that there's a select group of people in this world who have resources and that gives them the illusion that they can manage their life. That gives them the misnomer that they're in control. And Jesus says this, after he says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, he says this, you've heard it, it was the centerpiece of one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s great sermons found in John 8. If the Son sets you free, say it, church, you will be free indeed. Stuck people have a question. When you're stuck, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, in a marriage, with your finances, in a relationship, struggling to make sense of life and God, stuck people who struggle with themselves have this question. Sooner or later, you ask yourself this question. Why do I do what I don't want to do? Ever been there? I'm not going to eat that. I'm not going to look at this. I'm not going to drink that. 
I'm not going to tell her that she reminds me of her mother. I'm not going to ruin this relationship. I'm not going to, I'm not going to yell at the kids. I'm not going to avoid conflict. I'm going to boldly confront. I'm not going to worry. Instead of worrying, I'm going to pray. Instead of obsessing, I'm going to lighten up and laugh and enjoy the levity of all of life. But you find yourself doing the very thing that you said you weren't going to do. What do you do? You eat that. You look at this. You drink that. You tell her, doggone it, that she's just like her mother. You make a mess of the relationship. You yell at the kids. You avoid the conflict. You worry instead of pray. You obsess instead of laughing. You do the very thing that you said you weren't going to do. That's the inevitable and variable question sooner or later that the stuck person asks. Look with me, if you will, at Romans chapter 7. We're going to put it on the screen in just a second. If you want to turn to page 943, some of you are intimidated to turn because you don't turn fast and people are watching you and they're judging you because you're not a fast turner. They think they're better than you, right? Page 943, we just took away the intimidation factor. If you have a black ESV study Bible, if you don't own a study Bible, this is our gift to you. Page 943, Romans chapter seven. We're gonna read this verse and I wanna ask you, after you hear what Paul is saying, the language, the question of the stuck person, when you hear this, do you think, not me? Or do you think, me too? For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells in me. Romans 7, verse 15 to 20. Sin is very real. Sin is a misunderstood word. We were out with friends about a year ago, and we noticed on the dessert menu at this fancy restaurant that there was several particular desserts that used the word sin in them to describe the dessert. Sinfully decadent. And sin is a word that we find on dessert menus, but we have a lot of misconceptions about. At the core of it all, sin is this idea, this wrong idea that I can live my life independent of God. Earlier in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about uh, how we're all, we can just look at creation and see the general revelation of God and how that we're all without excuse to come to know him, to follow him, to worship him. It talks about, Paul talks about in Romans 1, uh, God's uh, divine nature, his uh, infinite wisdom, his eternal glory, and it describes uh, humankind at our worst and it says that sin is, is a bigger problem than we can ever imagine. And that sin actually uh, it gets inside of us. Paul uses the words of those who are given over to sin. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish heart 
was darkened. Sin can get in you and it can affect your habits, your thinking, the way you see things, the way you feel about stuff. Sin, as it runs its course, has an effect. Marriages are wrecked. Homes get broken. Hearts get shattered. Reputations get ruined because of this thing called sin. And you and I at our worst, we cannot manage our lives, but somehow we have the illusion of control that we can. And left to our own, we have this propensity, this very real course of trajectory where we can, left to our own ways and our own devices, we turn from God and we can make an idol of our success. We can dishonor our sexuality. We can turn the other way to what is good and virtuous, what God has for us. We can be greedy with our wallets. We can let resentment fill our hearts. We can let anger take over our lives. Sin is big. Sin is real. Sin is when we say we can live our lives on our own. I don't think there's any other reality. It's hard to describe God to people who don't believe or aren't sure, right? I mean, everyone's looking at this world going, God is not visible or tangible or audible. Where are you, God? Are you real? How do you experience that and describe that to other people? Sin to me is one of those just, it's just clear the empirical data on sin. You can look around, but listen, church, you can look within. And Paul says, there's this struggle There's this stuckness to my life. Stuck happens. The things that I want to do, I don't do them. The things that I I do do want to do, I don't do them. The things that I don't want, boom. There's a struggle. And sin can have this mastery in my life. And what do we do? What's our course? As you grow older, in your talk with friends, or kids who are growing, you ask people, when did you stop playing certain games or believing in certain things? When did you stop believing in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy? When did you, when did you stop playing hide and seek? But you know, our beliefs do change as we grow, don't they? But the fact that we are game players never really does change. In fact, Scripture teaches us from beginning to end that the way that you and I live life within our stuckness is we play the game of hide and seek. All three of my kids back in the day would play that game. Parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? And they run and they hide and they close their eyes and they hide when they're little bitty, they hide behind a chair or some drapes or whatever and they close their eyes when it's time for you to begin your search of them. And they close their eyes, but you can see their feet and you can hear them laughing. And they think because they can't see you, you can't see them. Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend, if I descend, you're everywhere. You know everything about me. When I lie down, when I rise up, you know my thoughts, my hearts, my ambitions, my dreams, hopes and inspirations. You know it all God sees. 
but you and I play a game of hide and seek. And in our, in our hiding, we play a couple of games. We play a game called impression management. Impression management is, I want you to think something about me, and I'm going to carefully craft the image so you will think this is true about me. And in the game of impression management, as we're hiding the real self to others, not to God, but to others, it becomes about control. I'm going to control you. I'm going to control my spouse. I'm going to control my kids. I'm going to control the people that I work with. Impression management. Another way that we hide is pain management. I'm going to what? I'm going to medicate. I'm going to medicate this through alcohol, sex, television, through food, through escapism, through achievement. I'm going to, I'm going to use these things, one or all of the above, to numb the pain. I'll use noise. Uh, I'm, I fear, I have that FOMO, fear of missing out. When I get up at, to go to the bathroom at 3 a.m., I'm going to check Facebook. I really care about what other people think of me. I care about how many likes or comments I get. It's impression management and pain management. Earlier this year, we were all taken aback by the news of NBC Anchorman Brian Williams. Brian Williams had purported to be in Iraq in a helicopter that was shot at. He was in Iraq. He just wasn't in the helicopter that was shot at. And I think about that, and too many of us gloried in another person's fall. We do that, don't we? That's what a media-saturated society does. We build them up, and then we tear them down. I think we get more joy in seeing people fall down than we do otherwise. And we watch this man who, and think about it, Brian Williams has glamour and good looks. He's got health and wealth. He's got public acclaim. He's got intelligence. He's got all the things that you and I would line up for. We would stand behind Brian Williams, many of us, in a line to sign up for all the things, all the gifts that he has. But something in him, an inner voice of impression management of ego said, I need you to think even more highly of me. All that I have it's not enough. For some of us, our hide and, when we hide with pain management or impression management, some of us, we seek. And what is it that you're seeking? There's a beautiful story in John chapter 4. Some of you know about a woman at a well, and Jesus knew all about her. And she, as she began to discern his discernment, his omniscience, his power, his knowledge. She said, oh, what are you, a prophet? Because Jesus could see right through her. And he knew that this woman in ancient days is just like you and I in this modern time. We are going so many times to the wrong well. The wrong well. I live in Jackson. I know there's times you just don't drink the water unless you boil it or something. I don't know. We, I don't know. But there is water that we drink that's really bad for us. And in our hiding and in our seeking, we go seek. We, we play a game. We seek to drink for something that is not going to satisfy us. Paul himself, I appreciate this because I'm a little bit like him. Maybe some of you are. Galatians 1.10. Am I now trying to win or seek the approval of human beings or of God? Notice the dichotomy there. Boom, boom. Human beings or God? Or am I trying to please people? 
If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Seeking the approval of others. What a broken well that is. Some of you know that the guy who patted you on the back yesterday can be the same guy that stabs you in the back tomorrow. People are fickle. The girlfriend who brought you encouragement in an area of your strength can be the same girlfriend that behind your back can gossip about a weakness. I was reading about the late Whitney Houston this week. And I read and I watched a clip by Kevin Costner, who was her co-star in the movie, The Bodyguard. Some of you with me, early 90s, 93, I believe. And Kevin Costner talks about this remarkable, famous singer named Whitney Houston, who on the, the screen test of the film Bodyguard, people around her were waiting on her for her performance. And they couldn't find her, and they began a search looking for Whitney Houston. Kevin Costner began a frantic search, and he found her hidden in a place, sitting, looking intently at a mirror, very sad. And he asked her, what's up? Let's go. Let's get started. This is huge. She she was saying, are people going to like me? Am I good enough? Now think about that. One of the most phenomenal singers ever, about to test for a movie that would clearly feature her amazing voice. And she's wondering, am I good enough? And are people going to like me? Pain management, image management, seeking the approval of other people. Next week, we're going to talk about the value of intentional community and how we ought to value each other and live out the one another's as a faith family. But we need to understand the gospel. And to understand the gospel, we need to realize that there's only one Savior. And I want to ask you this morning, are you looking for somebody else to be your Savior? People are fickle. People are going to turn on you. Some of you know the pain of that. Women. Your heart is broken. A man can't fix it. He can't be your savior. And I don't care if you're married and every day you come home to a house that's been impeccably cleaned and rose petals are all over the floor. And his chiseled physique is leaning over a changing table after caring for one more diaper. But over time, you're going to start thinking, why does he leave these rose petals all over the floor? Why does he change every diaper? Does he think, I can't do it? And that's going to grow old because your heart is broken. No one else could fix it. And that man can't be your savior. Men, you come home and that wife of yours is dressed very skimply. And she has a sizzling platter of your favorite steak done just the way you like it. She sequestered the kids to their bedroom so that you could watch football all night uninterrupted. And over time, you're going to see that your heart is still broken and she can't fix you and you need a savior. In fact, men, you're going to start fantasizing about a salad and some other woman, right? There's just something in us. To understand the gospel, we need to understand the whole that is in our heart. 
real quick, this isn't a marriage sermon, but a lot of you are married, some of you will be. But what, a, what idealism, what a crushing weight you put on someone if you're counting on that person to make you happy. We've both been honest. I love that woman. 19 years, almost 19 years and counting. I think we're at a very healthy place. I couldn't ask for a better mate, but I disappoint her and she disappoints me. And sometimes she doesn't bring me happiness. God knows a lot of times I don't bring her happiness. Sometimes she's the source of my unhappiness. Sometimes I'm the source, the very source of her unhappiness. She is not my savior and I am not her savior. And we can walk in the freedom if we know that. And we follow the one who invaded and entered history and helped stuck people get unstuck. If we bind ourselves to him, abandon our way of living, follow him, we'll find liberation and we'll find freedom. Paul says what? The sin thing has mastered me. So what does it mean to really understand the gospel? I want to give you a word. I want want to give you a word that I pray will be a part of your life and mine as I lead here, as we learn to love together. It's this word admitting. What if we became an admitting community? I have friends in recovery. You do too. Maybe you're in recovery. And you'll notice those people get together and there's a shared battle. There's shared suffering. There's a, a fragile thing. There's a vulnerability to it. And the people in AA are in some ways, I just thought of it this week, but they're similar to the early church in Acts chapter two. The early church in Acts chapter two, they, they weren't there because of their, their background, because of their political opinions or their racial demographics or their educational status or their vocational endeavors. They were there to follow a risen savior and they were there admitting that they needed a savior. You see, the gospel can't be sweet unless we acknowledge our sin and our inability to manage our life is very bitter. Admitting what? Admitting demands honesty. Admitting requires a ruthless assessment of your condition. Admitting happens when you hit the wall, when there's no more energy left to pretend when you stop playing games, when you no longer care what other people think. Admitting occurs when you say, I need you. I've made a serious mess of my life. I'm in trouble. I need help. Admitting ushers in the good news of the gospel. There's a Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper. And he says that the structure of the human heart and soul is similar to the structure of the ancient Old Testament tabernacle. Kuiper says there's an an outer court and the outer court is where everybody is allowed. It's the public image. For me as a pastor, uh, you hear me preach, you see me lead. It's my public image. I have a public image. Everybody's invited into that. And you too, no matter what you do, you too have a public image. Kuiper goes on to say, beyond that outer court is a holy place. And in the holy place, there's limited access. Access is required and access is brought or given to a few people. 
a few trusted friends. Do you have any of those friends that you can disclose almost anything to? This Dutch theologian says that inviting the right people into that holy place of your life is probably the predominant indicator if you'll follow Christ long-term. Inviting the right people into that holy place. But beyond the outer courts, beyond the holy place is the most sacred place, he says. It's the holy of holies. It's a small secret chamber where there's only room for one person and God. And if things are healthy and whole in the holy of holies, nothing on the outer court can take that away. If things aren't good in the holy of holies, there's nothing from the outer court, no glory in the outer court that can satisfy you. And the scripture tells us, I don't have the verses up, I just have the references up. There's two great passages, 1 John 1, 8 and 9. It says that if we deny that we sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9 says, some of you know this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James chapter 5 and verse 16 says that if we confess our sins one to another and pray for one another, we can be healed. You won't be healed without confession. You won't be healed without prayer. I remember in the college days in a cafeteria, maybe some of you it's like this, or you remember this, we used to gather and we'd wait. We'd have an inner circle of friends that would join us for lunch that day. And then you'd put your thumb up, right? You know, some of you know where I'm going. You put your thumb up and the last person to put their thumb up is the loser. And the loser has to do what? Pray. You lose, you pray. Wonder what God thinks about that, huh? He probably didn't care. God's probably thinking somebody needs to pray over this cafeteria food, right? Somebody needs to pray. But think about that idea. It's almost as if maybe I'm being too imaginative here, but it's almost this idea that maybe we think that God wasn't with us before that. So we're thumb, we're, we got our thumbs up. God's not watching. And then we pray, Lord, we pray a prayer. James says the early church with suffering and persecution and martyrdom, with in, in the book of James, in fact, recalling the days of Elijah, there was drought way worse than we're going through now. And there were farmers, pretty much all farmers, no factory or industry back then. And there was just this time of terrible impatience and need. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, pray. Pray and confess to one another. And I can't help but think today our deception, and our denial. Man, I'm not wanting to knock anybody off a high horse this morning. I'm to, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news because the topic, the, the value that we're talking about today is what gospel enjoyment. But to know the sweetness of Christ, we've got to know the bitterness of our sin. And there will sooner or later, there will come a place, a circumstance, a situation, or relationship, and you will say, most of us have already been there. You will say, I'm, I am powerless. I'm powerless with this fatal attraction to do wrong. 
My life is not manageable. Last night, this morning, about 1 a.m., a friend texts me. I know his sin. I know his struggles. I know his addictions. He texts me. He goes, hey, preacher, pray for me. I'm with so-and-so, and I'm, at, I'm on Bourbon Street. Pray for me. I know I'm in a situation that I probably cannot win. Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another so that you won't be hardened by what? By the deceitfulness of sin. To enjoy the gospel means we can move away from impression management and pain management, and we can move away from this elaborate game that we play of adult hide and seek. And we can say, like the adulterous woman, like the tax collector, like the religious man named Nicodemus, like the disciples paralyzed over fear in the boat with Jesus, like the, the Pharisee named Saul, like so many others. When the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. What does he say? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I'm praying for a burden and a load that is so heavy for so many of us that we would be different with our game play. That God would lead us into a joyful place of freedom found in understanding that this good news of the gospel says, I love you and I, I love you no matter what and don't think you gotta clean it up first. What did he say two chapters before Romans 7 and Romans 5? He says, but while we were sinners, Christ died for us. When you were in that state and in that place, that's when Christ died for you. That is the gospel story. Would you pray with me?